Can you hear a car? Uh, occasionally. You can dabble with that. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Right. It just right. sounds right. like we're in a scene from, you know, Sun Hill 1998. So, yeah, you know. exactly. Yeah, some of breaking into a car around the corner. <laughs> yeah. No, stop now. They've made off with it. They've gone with yeah. it. Yeah, again, I failed at my job. <laughs> Hello, this is Ben Payton, and you are listening to The Bill Podcast, brought to you in association with GeorgeFairbrother.com, TheGoldrickWatchRepairs.com, and Misty Moon Events. For over 60 hours of exclusive The Bill-related content, including reunion highlights, cast and crew commentaries, reaction videos, pilgrimage location videos, off-the-beat bonus podcasts, and much more, join the investigation from £2.49 a month at patreon.com forward slash The Bill Podcast. The staging of a production is is glorious, isn't it? Because you've got stuff going on in the foreground and then the background. And... Yeah. Uh, Ellen's uh, got a, an award for that set. I mean, yes, I so I read, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think when I saw it, actually, when she came in to, on the first day of rehearsals and we met um, the people, you know, doing costume and design and, and lighting and all of that, we had a Zoom meeting with the lighting person who was looking at when she unveiled the little model of the set i actually it moved, really moved me i really felt quite tearful that it was such a that somebody had really sort of had a vision and such a simple vision because the play is not you know there's not a huge amount of money in the play the way that the books being scattered around and the the furniture being used and stuff to try and create this kind of environment of the trenches what have you and i just thought well done that's such a great it's so theater is such a wonderful thing because you're you're expecting and hoping that the audience will come on a little make-believe trip with you you know jump over the other side of the sofa with you and pretend it's french or something you know i i felt so immersed in it and i felt that you as a company of actors were immersed in mm. in that make-believe and bringing it to life to us and it and it felt a very energized production um yeah. and um you know, I'm just thinking in terms of people who haven't seen the play. Would you mind giving a giving us the story of you know where where this story has come from and a little bit about Neville's background? So the play is set uh, in it begins in 1910 at Balliol College, Oxford, Oxford University. It's about a feud between Etonians and, as they would call them, the plebs who weren't Etonians. Going back now to um, Mr. Johnson, you know, um, but it, uh, and it, it's a true story. So it's a true story, and all of the characters in it are uh, for real, and all of them are on the on the boards and things at when you walk around Balliol. We went to Balliol on uh, the first weekend of rehearsals, and it's about this bitter feud between uh, a guy catchy from Northwest from Liverpool area came down from a banking family who earns his way through education into going to Oxford University, who then, who's very, very, uh, becomes very, very involved in uh, a boys club that is formed to help poor kids, you know, in the Oxford area. And how the the crazy behaviour of 18 Etonians in 1910 who were admitted in the freshers' intake of 53, 18 were Etonians. And so they just pushed everyone out of the societies and things and, you know, 
these kind of dead poet society type things and sort of committees, what have you, you know, and, and clubs, what have you. But nobody else was allowed in because all these Etonians were saying, no, not from Eden. You're not important. You're not part of it. No. And that feud continues into the dark days of the Great War, you know, in, in Ypres. And Neville Talbot, my character, is very much the mediator. And so it's interesting that, you know, just going back to what I was saying about being a therapist, is that, you know, that was his role. Because when I was there, I met the, the current dean of Balliol College. I said, what did he do? What's their role? What has been my role? And she said, well, you'd be very much the, the counsellor and mediator and therapist for all these, you know, 19-year-old, 20-year-old guys, you know, from, you know, who've got problems and stuff and they need pastoral care. As I say in the play, you know, I came to this college to provide pastoral care and help the flower of youth of this country. I become the chaplain of the third battalion of the rifle brigade, as does Billy Grenfell becomes a second lieutenant and Keith Ray. These are the protagonists in our story. Also, there's a character in it who is very much a mediator as well, who was kind of on the fence between the two, but his heart really. Uh, you know, th and this is all taking place in the time of what the Liberals are in power. And Lloyd George has come up with this crazy scheme, which I think in an ideal world is perfect, to tax landowners. And he calls it the people's budget. And of course, all the landowners of the House are the Lords. So the House of Lords block it. And of course, you know, the suffragettes and a lot of unrest and rioting and, you know, lots of social unrest and stuff. So it's on the backdrop of that. And, you know, there is a lot of relevance to the story mm. now. So, so I'm on the fence with it. But, I, you know, the thing is, at the end of the day, I have to think, well, my character, he wants to keep his job, you know. Unfortunately, Billy Grenfell, his mother is uh, one of the richest women in England, and his father, Lord Grenfell, who's climbed the Matterhorn and swum the Atlantic and, you know, done all these amazing things, you know, and become MP for Salisbury and then Baron Desborough, the set, I mean, a total, utterly privileged kind of on another level you know he's a benefactor of the college so i can't send his son down or reprimand him in a way because i'll lose my job and so the thing is it's all very well being kindly and um, lovely christian chaplain and friend to everyone but i don't want to lose my job you know i have i'm in this really difficult position where i've just been barracked and barracked and barracked and pushed and pushed and pushed by this feud and particularly by Keith Ray is always coming to me saying, send him down, send Billy down, send Billy down. I can't work under these circumstances because he's doing these crazy things and trashing the place and trashing restaurants and coming back and bringing girls back and something the other. And I want to get on with my duty to the Balliol Boys Club and, and my work. And, you know, I'm a good Christian scholar and it's affecting everyone. And uh, but it's a true story. And there's another character called Ronald Paulson, who was a rugby player who at that time, uh, was a big name coming up, up and coming in the England rugby union side. So obviously he played for Oxford and he played for um, Harlequins and he has a, a plaque in um, Westminster Abbey. In simple terms, it's about, um, for me, it's about duty and commitment to, you know, all of the students in the, you know, but I'm torn. Well, I'm mm. not, very, you know, because it's actually Neville Tolbert, who uh, whose father was the Bishop of Leeds, who's actually born in Oxford uh, when his father was chaplain. 
I'm the chaplain of Balliol College. I actually um, served throughout the First World War. And as, I, as, a, as a line I have in it, I say, you know, I, I should have been a stretcher bearer because that's what Jesus Christ would have been. He certainly wouldn't have been an officer, having people salute him and all of that. But all I do is bury men day after day. That's all I do. And so this man who was not particularly good at sport, but really enthusiastic and loved rugby, really into rugby, loves Ronnie Fulton and all that's my choice. Of it. Very enthusiastic, quite unorthodox. Apparently the character, he was actually six foot six. So I'm sort of six inches shorter than him. You know, towering man, huge man who, you know, I mean, he's probably his head would have out, been out of the trenches <laughs> yeah. walking along. But he, he survived. Well, he died in 1943. I became Bishop of Pretoria. It's an interesting story. The first half is very much Oxford. second half is Ypres. It was a timeless drama, isn't it? And it will always be so, the idea of that, you know, because it's the First World War, all their problems, all their squabbles, all their feuds become irrelevant in the bigger picture, yet we still care about those people and what they cared for, um, and they've got to put it all aside. And that's like... That kind of drama is always going to have an impact. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that, you know, a lot of things I've been watching just to find that time, sort of Edward or the Englishness. It's about that as well. It's about the class system, which is always a massive deal in this country, and it always will be. Well, certainly in my lifetime, I think. I've been hothousing myself with things like Remains of the Day, uh, Shadowlands. I've really got into Anthony Hopkins of late, just to see, and I haven't really taken him in that much, apart from the obvious films. Well, they are, I suppose they are the obvious films, but they're so amazing. But then, of course, 1917, uh, but and and also the film which I think is fantastic with somebody I went to drama centre with, uh, Paul Bettany, Journey's End. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's worth watching. There's so much that, as to draw from, you know, uh, in terms of what were these people like. It's Edwardian England, you know, which is very different from Victorian, which is very different from the 20s, which is very different from, you know, with a war in between and stuff, changes the face and stuff. It's fascinating. I mean, I don't think you can ever do too much work. No. In terms of, like, what were the people about? What were they like? I think I've only, you know, this, we've got 12 more performances, or 11 more performances of the play. And I feel like I've just started to scratch in below the surface of it. It's a very pure, tender performance and truthful and i believe that every i was there with you in every moment well oh, thank you and yeah. I, but i was i was watching you know neville you know i wasn't watching ian fletcher you know and i hope you take that as a compliment it's intended you know i was in oh, the thank world you. yeah thank you thank and, you because it's a responsibility bringing to life someone who lived isn't it you know a real person. yeah it is but do you know what with hugh and i said this to him when we when i had the first meeting with this play I said, you know what? He said, well done with that scene. And the, the scene that I read was the scene that uh, I'm reprimanding Billy actually in the in yeah. the track, which I don't want to do. But Neville mm -hmm. Talbot doesn't want to do because his heart is, he doesn't want to hurt any of these people, you know, but he's had enough yeah. of these, in, you know, King Toffs <laughs> and they're how dare you bring it into the trenches when people are getting their heads blown off left, right and centre and, you know. But I've had to really discover that through performance because I don't think, you know, you know even after 20, 30 performances of a play, you're, you've got to treat every performance as a, not a rehearsal, but a, a still an exploration.
Otherwise, the audience are not getting what they deserve, I think. You've got to keep working. Don't give up on anything. And if there's one thing that isn't quite work, just work for that, and the rest will come. I just heard today, um, yesterday, Simon Russell Beale was um, directed in a play with, uh, by Sam Mendes. And the play ran for quite some time, and Sam Mendes had to leave the production because he was off doing, I don't know, directing film or what have you. And he was on the other side of the world. And the associate director got in touch with Sam Mendes and the, the play had been running for maybe six weeks or two months or whatever it is, I don't know. He said, the play's getting a bit baggy. It's losing its something. The, the, the actors are aware of this and they want to know, they want some notes. They need some notes from them. And he, he left a note or sent a note each week whilst the play was still running. And to Simon Russell Beale, he said, whatever the character, I forget what the play was and what it was now, but he just said, when did your character take his last drink before the first scene or whatever it was? Or when did your character um, last have a scan? Or so, you know what I mean? So it just needs yeah. to put something else into your head about some detail that you could bring on. And it said, and what happened, it totally freshened up the play again, just from a couple of little simple notes here and there. But it's not something you can play with a funny walk or a whatever, mm. but it's just something there. Which I think well, every, every actor has a duty to try and create. Yeah? And I always try to do that with Rob Skase, actually. But he, he didn't really end up where I intended him. <laughs> Let's go on that journey because, I mean, where, where did you first discover the acting bug? How did it begin for you? And um, there weren't any performing genes in your family, am I right? My father was an engineer, my, mo my mother was a mother at home. My mother, much more interested in film theater and stuff you know just sunday afternoons watching um dr shivago whatever you know in the days when it was just there all the time bbc or whatever late night films and stuff you know and my father my father actually did go to oxford he went for one year he did maths and physics i think he was a little bit on the spectrum asperger's my parents were not with us anymore my father died six years ago my mother eight years ago down on the south coast right near um brighton not far from Chris Ellison, actually. Ah, cool. <laughs> right? He was really kind to me. My first um, duty as an actor in the bill, I went to the Brighton Metropole Hotel for some big Lord, Lord's Taverners gala dinner charity event. There was a casualty table, a bill table, a uh, between-the-lines table, a London's burning table, a soldier-soldier table. You remember those? Right yeah. Back and I was so, God, and I had to wear black tie, and I went with my partner, and I lived in Brighton at the time. And I remember um, Chris Ellison. He said, "So you're you're new you're new in the show, are you?" And he, he left it by then because the new DS was Sally Johnson. And he said, "If you want me advice, he said, when you go and go and do just go and impersonate your favourite actors." He said, "That's all I'd ever do." Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, or whatever, you know from him. Oh wow! Oh, okay, that's a good that's a good. One. So uh, yeah, so the first first six months, I don't know what the hell I was doing? But anyway, but I was kind of. Yeah, one of them. Someone, can I do Brian Cant from Play School? <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, but no, I so I, I I went to Worthing Technical College. My father basically press ganged me into doing a two year business studies course, and all I learned to do was recreational things and running around chasing the girls on my course. If you know what I mean, put it you know, politely. And uh, after the first year, I did the exams. The um, the head of the course and the 
principal of the college, uh, Worthing Technical College, said, um, you, we're not inviting you back for the second year. I said, okay. They said, why are you doing this course? You're, you're able to do it, but you're not interested in the slightest time. And I said, well, and I had that one time when I'd had somebody speak to me and it wasn't, it wasn't a kind of like a school teacher telling me off sort of way. It was a curiosity, a real curiosity of me. And I remember thinking, I've got a choice here. What do I say? Do I just say, oh, you know, I'll try harder or whatever. Maybe I can carry on and they'll let me, I don't know. But I just said, no, I'm not. And I just had this rush of blood to the head. And I just thought, I've got the opportunity to just be really honest. And they said, why are you doing the course? And I said, well, my father told me to do it. And they looked at each other and looked back at me and said, yes, we understand. We're not going to put a black mark by your name if you need a grant for any other course in, in this county in West Sussex. And I went straight back to home in Littlehampton, which is where Mark Winger used to keep his fishing boat. Oh, wow. Right. Unbeknownst to me at that point, and I think the bill would have started by then. 1984 it started, didn't it? Yeah. But Mark, obviously, he was doing it. This is about 88. And uh, I went back and met my mate Garth, who was sitting on the beach as a lifeguard, smoking something interesting. And he passed it to me, and I sat down, and he said, what's wrong? I said, I got kicked out. I can't tell what to do. I can't tell my dad. And he said, um, well, what are you going to do then? He said, why don't you do a drama course at Chichester? Yeah. Yeah, okay, I had to think about it. And I did, and I went along, and I did um, the obvious Richard III speech. And the other thing, you could do a song. And I didn't know any musical theatre, so I decided to do a song called Five Years, which was by a David Bowie song on the life and times of Ziggy Stardust, the opening track with the drum pad. Oh. And I've, I've recruited this amazing elderly pianist who lived in Littlehampton called Joan Last, to play the piano backing track and I recorded it on my ghetto blaster and took it in with him, put it down and I sang the song and I did that and then I got onto this course at Chichester and then Chichester we had this crazy and lovely uh, acting teacher called Alan Avis who you know he, he, he his job what he wanted was everyone to get into drama school Lambda, Rada you know all these ones and I was, my, my contemporaries were um, somebody you might be familiar with, an actor who's done quite a few bills, actually, an actor called Paul Putner. And Paul Putner, brilliant comic, comic actor. He works a lot with Stuart Lee and does a lot of writing mm. for Radio 4, this and the other. And he was always in Little Britain. Yes. And, and also he did the um, Rock and Chips, I think it was called, the prequel right. to, you know? Only Falls, yeah. And yeah. he does lots of different things. He works with Peter Sarafanovitz, you know, how to pronounce his name. And, but he was... A year above me. Anyway, I went along and did a two-year theatre arts foundation course. Cut a long story short, I, I, yeah, I did the course. That was good. And um, but I kept coming up to London to see a girlfriend of mine, and and then I, and so you know, bunked it a lot. Uh, but I, I, I didn't actually get into a drama school when I was there. I just came up to London, and started tearing tickets at the Wyndham Theatre and all of the other theatres in what was called the Maybox Theatre Company, watching wonderful plays. One of them really stood out was um, the, the Secret Life of Sherlock Holmes with Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick. Oh, and, wow. and Jeremy Brett kind of always supported me and took an interest because I was auditioning for drama schools. And he said, make sure you get on with a good voice teacher. And if you need anything, I'll write a letter to, to you know, back you up and stuff. And, uh, and I used to see, I saw Serious Money, Carol Churchill play fantastic with uh, Gary Olsen in it. Remember oh, Gary Olsen? Who, yeah. 
He started on the bill. Um, yeah, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah, I forgot that, but I remember seeing a picture of him on the walls in the thing. Yeah. Oh, cool. You're damn right. Yeah, of course. Uh, that started at the Royal Court Theatre with Gary Oldham was doing it. And uh, it was directed by Max Safford Clark. And uh, and then I saw Richard Harris doing um, Henry the Fourth, a Pirandello play there, and lots of lot wonderful and and the Secret Life of Sherlock Holmes, lots of different things, Stephen Burkoff and things. And I was like really still wanting, you know, I knew I wanted to be an actor, and, uh, and that was when I found out about Drama Centre because of the Simon Callow book, being an actor. And that was it. I went to Drama Centre when uh, in in nineteen ninety one, fabulous time scared every day really not wow. failing failing every day because it was the first time i really felt i was reading any decent literature or plays or anything or you know, reading properly and in control and you know really thinking i'm i'm learning a craft and i'm learning stuff that i couldn't ever have you know just coming from chichester going up to drama center and having that kind of background and you know, Christopher Fettis and Yap Mongren. Yap Mongren um, was a, a partner with, um, a professional partner with uh, Rudolf Laban from Sweden, uh, who created this work called Movement Psychology, that they were working with Maggie Smith and Sean Connery back at the end of the 50s, early 60s, when Connery actually went and screen test for Bond and Maggie Smith. And, and Christopher had worked at doing a lot of theatre. Actually, after I'd left Drama Centre, I gate-crashed a, um, a talk from Anthony Hopkins, who came to Drama Centre and talked to the school about his career and very honest about his life and mm. his relationship with alcohol in the early days and when he realised he'd had to stop before Hannibal Lecter and all of that. But he always said that he based his Hannibal Lecter on Christopher Fettis, our principal, no who way. was able to just sit there in a way and just make you feel everybody in the room as if he's talking to them and, you know, you feel like Clary Starling, you know, Christopher, a very scary man. But I, I th if I hadn't gone to Drama Centre, I don't think I would have lasted because I don't think I would have been disciplined enough. Because the Drama Centre approach was very much like a kind of European conservatoire approach. And it was one of the three schools which were a little bit against the, the usual kind of English um, sort of drama school approach. Uh, East 15 being one just down the road, Epping. Uh, which have, was made up from drama centre students who'd left, and also arts education, which is down in Chiswick. But it, so the bill, when the bill came along, and I'd, I, you know, I'd been up to maybe a couple of villains in the bill, and I hadn't got them. I was living down in Brighton at the time, just along from where Lawrence Olivier used to live on the seafront. <coughs> and I got the got the bill, and then suddenly I was in a totally different world because, excuse me, drama centre sort of really taught you the theatre classical theatre and Stanislavski and Strasbourg approach. We were very lucky we had a we had an acting teacher who used to teach uh, who was a student and also did teach at the actors studio in New York. Oh, so his right. contemporaries were Peter Falk, Columba, oh, you know, right. and John Cassavetes, who was in Rosemary's Baby and Dirty Dozen and did them. these guys were all, all were all off Broadway kind of actors and stuff and that 50s and 60s you know he used to teach and we all think that maybe Peter Falk uh, based his Columbo on this guy and his name was Reuven fantastic drama teacher, um, acting teacher he used to smoke like a chimney not in the classes but he would if he could have but it would, you know, he'd always say so what do you want what do you want what do you want? where you come from what do you want and everything and he'd always be outside smoking with all the students so he'd go back in and 
you'd work on one line in a scene for an hour and a half or something wow. and building things. And it was like the real deal, you know. So the bill coming along was like going into another world where you're still mixing with lots of uh, the great thing about the bill, the bill and casualty and things like uh, you know, Soldier Soldier and um, London's Burning is that those shows were such great employers of young actors coming out of drama school in front of a camera. And you get these things on your CV, you know, and, you know, I, and I work with some great, you know, I mean, loads of fantastic actors. I did, I did an episode where I had to um, arrest Ray Winston. I did an episode with me and Simon Rouse and Ray Winston. And this was before he did Nil by Mouth and he hadn't been working for quite some time. And suddenly I'm working with Ray, Ray Winston. I knew him from Quadrophenia, of course, and then they knew each other, Mark and thing in the green room, they were talking stuff. But I worked with same people like Tim McKinnery, who's a fine actor yeah. doing it. And also I worked with, um, um, I didn't do any scenes with him, but I was um, in the same episode and spent a bit of time talking with um, Rick Mayo, came in and did a three-part oh. or something. Yeah, that's Humpty Dumpty, that story. That's right, cool. yeah. And yeah. you'd see actors come through and, and uh, you know, John Sim came in and do something with Sean Harris, if you know Sean Harris. Yeah. They were in my year. Craig Kelly and, you know, my contemporaries, Stuart Lang, who did the live episode, a very dear friend of mine from Drama Centre, who did that live episode. It, yeah, and I, and, 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 and I now live in Tunbridge Wells, so I'm living close to um, Stephen Hartley. Oh, cool. Yeah, another wonderful Stephen, leader. Stephen Hartley, I can't <laughs> right down there. Yeah. Uh, and I love Stephen. I never worked with him, but I know him because he knows Mark and all of that. And uh, yeah, but I've been kind of in—it's been in terms of like talking to you. I've been wanting to do it for a long time, but I was just I haven't been in the right place. Bless you, really. You know, just yeah. because I didn't want to—I don't want to go. Hey, hey, this is great, you know. But it's like because I want to be really honest with you, and I think yeah. even when, right at the beginning when you now that, you know I know that you came to see the play and you said such lovely things, and I really feel like you kind of got it with what I'm trying to do in it. I hope you do continue down this path. I mean, I know you'd also make a great, because that's the thing meeting Greg. Well, like, I thought Greg was a wonderful actor and he's a fantastic therapist. He's helped someone very close to me in real life, actually. Oh, then, that's great. You know, he became yeah. a client. Yeah. And, um, yeah. But like something, so when I think of Greg's interview, I mean, he, he talked so warmly about his time living with you and, you know, he could still remember your cat's names and, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he, he, he like, something a, a few of the people who listened to his podcast commented on as well is it was like he was a, a young man. This is before getting a bill. He was working part-time in a pizza restaurant. And he said, I just remember being really happy. Like, yeah. I was working part-time in this pizza place. I had good friends. I had a roof over my head. Life was good, you know. And, yeah. um and he said, then when you go down the acting road, and he said, I just remember around the time where, where he gave up, he was like, you're busting a gut and you're putting everything into whether you're going to get this episode of Doctors or not. Yeah. And he was like, you know, do I really want to have my mental health surrounded by am I going to get this Doctors or not? Or do I want to take control and yeah. have, you yeah. know, something else? And it's... It's exactly that. I mean, Oliver, you know, I, I remember when... I, you know, I had a really lovely time in the bill. I had really fond memories of the bill, but I needed enough space and time between. And talking to somebody, you know it well enough. You know, you know it very well. I'm really touched that you came to see the play. I really appreciate that. I really do. Honestly, do. That's that's great. That's fantastic. But I remember when I I I'd been doing the bill for maybe two years, 
I, I met John Sim, who I knew very well from Drama Center, and uh, we, we were in the same year. And he'd been doing um, The Lakes, The Lakes, okay. The Lakes, back then, yeah. And it, we met at this kind of some event, some awards thing, something. And he said, Flake, you know, when are you, when you going to do something else? You know, you've not done it long enough. And I'm like, yeah, but I've just signed a contract for that. And he said, well, no, don't do that, man. You know, you never do anything else. And uh, I remember thinking I was really chuffed that he felt that for me. But also I just thought, well, I'm learning and I'm not yeah. ready to go out and do anything else in the moment. And the bill is a very, say so it's, so it's a safe place. I mean, you had to, it's not like you could just phone it in. No, because we, no, we, no. we had an executive producer who was really, you know, if you didn't like someone, you're out. He would prevented actors going off and doing things like Noel's house party and stuff. Well, having said that, I mean, didn't Graham and, and Andy, but, but the whole thing of going off and doing Panto and this, that and the other, Michael Chapman really didn't like it. And I think he had very strict rules with it. And, you know, I'm from an era in the bill that I'm really proud of being part of that era, but the bill did change. I think it really changed and different producers. And it really showed how producers actually think that they can make it, they've got to have music or whatever, and they've got to have everyone jumping into bed with each other and turning it into and make it and serialize it or whatever. I don't yeah. think it needed it. What was charming and what was successful with the bill is that you didn't need to watch it from one week to the next or one episode to the next to be entertained by it and into it because it was like watching one play on its own about the job and the characters you will understand enough about the characters and then if you don't see the next episode and the next you see another one two or three weeks later it doesn't matter you can still get drawn into that story and i'm really glad that i was in that era hello this is ben payton and you have been listening to the bill podcast produced and presented by oliver crocker with special thanks to ian fletcher Co-produced by Ben Adams, Sarah Kuyper, Malcolm McLeod, Alex Mockler, Laura Pinifay, and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Ben Ashmore, Daniel Christopher, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, Dan Evans, George Fairbrother, Luke Hegarty, Edward Kellett, James Ledane, Simon McGoldrick, Lucy McNeil, Gary Moncur, Stuart and Jen Morris, Claire Norbury, Justin Pitt, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Michael Weil, and Sarah Went. Brought to you in association with GeorgeFairbrother.com, McGoldrickWatchRepairs.com, and Misty Moon Events. For over 60 hours of exclusive The Bill-related content, including reunion highlights, reaction videos, cast and crew commentaries, Bill Grimmage location videos, off-the-beat bonus podcasts, and much more... Join the investigation from £2.49 a month at patreon.com forward slash the build podcast.